And how about the, the uh, International Imperial Cartage Corporation? Or the other one. You don't like that? Well, I mean, it's, and, 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 we, and, and we'll take off those dull names like the A train, the B train. Uh, how about the uh, Flying Staten Islander? Isn't that all more exciting than, the, you know, the A train? You know how they got the Flying Scot and the, the, uh, the Dresden Special? Oh, that's a beauty. The Oriental Express. These are, these are great names. But you can't get excited every morning getting on the F train. I mean, even that has connotations. I, oh, I've heard terrible things. In fact, I saw one guy who filled in the whole thing, you know, one morning. He just wrote it in on the side of the car there. But I don't want to get in on that. It's just, that sort of thing will go. Will go. Uh... <laughs> But the, these these are all these are all uh, little uh, repercussions. And somebody wrote me a nice note here, and we'd like to read this from the from the throne room here. These little throne side talks are going over quite well, and uh, we notice a distinct lessening of, of, of public uh, tension since we've been telling them what's been happening. Uh, a note says, "Your most beneficent Majesty, in view of your plans of a court mistress, a humble subject would warn of quote over attachment." And he includes a clipping about uh, another monarch, uh, General de Gaulle. Uh, it says, uh, London, a nephew of former French President Charles de Gaulle, says that the haughty general is totally, and we're quoting here, totally henpecked and completely dominated by his wife, Yvonne. Uh, <laughs> remember, this is his nephew talking. He's been around the house a lot. You know, He doesn't see the, the general in the office, and he's around the house. He says, Alain de Gaulle wrote in a London magazine that, quote, Mrs. de Gaulle once told the general, and we quote here, you're running France, I'm running the house. Shut up. Uh, <laughs> kind of puts it beneath the little package, doesn't it? Alain's article in the current issue of The People said Mrs. de Gaulle dilutes her husband's liquor with coffee and has complete control of the family budget. But it adds that the family still thinks of de Gaulle as le patron. Quote, the general isn't even allowed to see the account book in which his wife keeps a detailed account and record of their personal finances. She starts a new book each year and stacks the old ones in a wardrobe, which is locked. So jealous is she of her private domain that she has a habit of slipping a hair between the pages of these account books just to see if any curious person, meaning Le Patron, has taken a peep. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, this is not uncommon, friends. Behind every great leader is almost always a shrew. In fact, uh, and I'm not putting Mrs. de Gaulle down, I don't know her personally, but the, we're just uh, taking this article at face value. However, it has been my my real experience that I have known many people who have been really top-driving, tough public people, and behind them is this Medea. Uh, you know, a lady who likes, uh, who makes, uh, who makes uh, uh, Minerva Looked like she's got a real nice hairdo. In fact, wasn't it Minerva who had the snakes? No, who was it? Medusa. That's right. Had the snakes coming out all over the top of the head. Yeah. Of course, uh, Electra. You, is this a classic example? After all, for the crowd, probably Orestes looked like a real tough guy. I mean, he was knocking down the palace and charging the troops. Yeah. And behind him was little old Electra there, a nice, pretty little lady with the black dress, carrying that jug on her shoulder. And that uh, she was bowling the pins, and he was, uh, you know, taking the shots. Well, uh, <laughs> well, there's been recent ones in our history. Uh, from what I've read recently, uh, the late uh, Jack Kennedy had his hands full from time to time. I just throw that out, throw that out for what it's worth. But this is not that uncommon. So we're going to watch this very carefully in our 
in our domain. Uh, I understand Madame Pompadour used to give the king his what for occasionally when he got out of line. This is a, a, a common, a traditional thing, and there's no no getting around it. So uh, I just uh, thought you ought to know. We, uh, Lee, would you please do this? Uh, uh, the, George Age, you know, wrote a beautiful piece on that. And if you'll look it up for me in here, it's the... Uh, it's the uh, story of the uh, politician who was not a hero at home. So if you'll look this up, while we're looking this up, I, I'll, I'll uh, go on. It's, it's uh, in the table of contents, I think. You know, speaking of trivia, and uh, and uh, <laughs> much of what George A. wrote, this great trivia, uh, I am going to ask you a question now tonight. I just, just, uh, it just came up, uh, thing came in the mail. And I'm going to ask you a rhetorical... You better get in there, because I think you can get a couple of men in there. Uh, that I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you know... How many... Uh, I'm sure that all of you have heard the expression, wrong way, Corrigan. You've heard the expression. They always say, boy, he really pulled a wrong way, Corrigan, that time. You've heard that many times? Well, how many of you know who wrong way, Corrigan, was? And what he actually did? why he was called Wrong Way Corrigan. This is not a nostalgia program tonight at all. It has to do with the... You know, I think there's about three or four levels of history. I've always thought this, that, that there's the top level of history, which is the big international stuff. You know, this is the stuff you learn in school. You, uh, you read about what battles were fought and what great bills were passed and what the treaties were made with this country and who was elected president and so forth. That's, that's, that's official history. Then there's secondary history, which could be called the inside story of the United Nations. This is it. But it's still about official stuff. Like I read a big book about uh, what Neville Chamberlain really said to Adolf Hitler at Munich. Okay, that's inside big history. And then there's the, the third level of history, which is rarely recorded except in tabloid newspapers. And uh, this is the kind of history which really makes up our lives. <laughs> really, the, the real, you know, the real, the real history, uh, uh, the history of of, uh, of life, really. And Corrigan is a guy who was in that history. No, he's not in any history book, I'm sure. You know, <laughs> and uh, and yet everybody knows his name. And and I'm sure that there are a lot of guys in history books that nobody knows their name. In other words, they were involved in official events, and so. There they are. They're listed there at the, the, on the table there, third from the end, at the signing of the Treaty of Ghent. Something, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, nobody knows who they are, but yet there they are officially ensconced in history. But a guy like Douglas Corrigan, Corrigan, rather, Douglas Corrigan, his name, he, he did something so peculiar and, and something caught on. He did one of the rarest of all things. It is extremely rare that a person's name enters the language. That is really rare. Uh, I, I can't think of many people. Other, a few, uh, a few fictional characters. This has happened to, like Babbitt, uh, as an example. It's a fictional character created by Sinclair Lewis. Uh, McCarthy, McCarthyism. This is this is one of the rare cases of a of a real man whose name has become part of the language. Uh, Volt. It's quite common in, uh, actually, it's quite common in, in uh, technical and or slash scientific things like uh, Ampere. You know, there was a Mr. Ampere <laughs> and Mr. Volt. Volta. Uh, these, this is quite common. Gauss is another one. 
Henry. This is another one. Uh, speaking of historical names, this is W.O.R. New York. And if you will, uh, please, George, hit the ding-dong there, if you will. Uh, Palisades Amusement Park. We have a little thing here. It says, uh, oh, it says this Saturday and Sunday at Palisades, the natural gas is on hand. The difference, the Soulphonics, free at Palisades Amusement Park, the big holiday weekend show. Now, uh... Yeah, you notice that? Uh, nobody knew who Corrigan was. Of course, I'm sure a lot of people do. Two guys called in and said they knew who Corrigan was. Well, I'll tell you who Corrigan... And why I'm mentioning Douglas Corrigan. A listener sent me something that is really going to be in an official place on the old bookshelf there where I keep all my officials. So the kind of stuff you really like to have. You know, you get all kinds of books that uh, you think it's going to be great to have, like the complete works of uh, Henry James. And you stick it up on your bookshelf, and baby, there it stays. I mean, it makes a great, uh, a great uh, uh, doorstop, <laughs> and it catches dust. And the stuff you'd really like to have, like for example, the collected works of Superman, uh, which would be kind of nice to have. Uh, quotations by Charlie Chan from great movies. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that uh, that you constantly pick up and look at. And he sent me this listener sent me this book, and it's so. It's so uh, it's in such a mint condition that it's even in the dust jacket. And there it is. There's the dust jacket, and it shows on the cover Douglas Corrigan, a picture of him. And behind him is his aircraft flying along there. You can see the water underneath it. And the name of the book is That's My Story. And I'll bet they didn't print 50 of them in its day. And what makes it even more valuable, take a look at this, George. Inside of it is Douglas Corrigan's autograph. It says uh, to whoever, whoever it is, I don't know who Mason Lateau is, but it says to Mason Lateau, Douglas Corrigan, 1739. Now, I, I'm just curious if any of you guys out there are autograph cuckoos uh, who, who are interested in autograph uh, collecting. Probably some of you have got catalogs. What is Douglas Corrigan's autograph worth? I mean, the name of a guy who's entered the, the language. And where is he? Whatever happened to him? Is he alive? Does anybody know whether he's alive? If he's alive, what's he doing? Well, I'll tell you who Douglas Corrigan was, for those of you who don't know who he was. Douglas Corrigan did something which is probably the single most remarkable feat in all the history of recorded history of aviation. And that includes the Lindbergh flight. The single most remarkable thing. Now, I'll tell you this is a flyer. I mean, what, it, what he did is so staggering that uh, <laughs> that any flyer today would just you just you know you just uh, you just sweat uh, you sweat bullets if anybody suggests that you do what he did I mean you, you couldn't comprehend doing it he flew from America to Europe he flew in a second-hand single-engine Curtis Robin which at that time uh, which was in 1938 or 39, I guess he flew this thing. That aircraft was, at that time, older than the aircraft that uh, Lindbergh flew. This is a really old airplane. I mean, well, it's a second-hand old, old clunker, a Curtis Robin, and, of course, he flew it nonstop. Now, what, what added even more to it was at the time when Lindbergh made his flight, uh, Lindbergh's flight was a well-prepared flight. I mean, they built the aircraft for him. He ordered this aircraft. It was especially built for that kind of flight. And uh, he felt that he could do it. It had all kinds of special, at that time, what was considered the advanced equipment in it. It had uh, 
It had special fuel tanks and so on, and the wing loading was uh, was designed especially for long uh, long endurance flying rather than uh, quick takeoffs and landings. As you know, there's a big difference in airplanes, just in the subtle design of, of dihedral and uh, lift and loading and so on. And Lindbergh's aircraft was built for the purpose. And uh, when he took off from, I guess it was Roosevelt Field, I think, in, in uh, Long Island, he took off and, and had, of course, uh, uh, backing. He actually had backers behind him. And more than that, he had the official approval of everybody concerned, including the government to do it. Well, wrong way, Corrigan couldn't get anybody behind him at all. I mean, if, if, forget it, you know, he could get, and he was, had no money at all. This was a depression. He had totally broke. And he had this old, this old used aircraft, this old uh, Curtis Robin, and uh, he couldn't get the government to approve a flight in this old thing. I mean, it was, it was obviously, well, that's all right, I'll find it then. It was obviously about to be uh, suicide, and the government is not going to approve suicide. And so they would not give him the okay. So they gave him the permission to fly from the East Coast to the West Coast, though, you know, by jumps. He got this permission. And so he took off, and by George, 28 hours later, he comes down into Europe and claims that he went the wrong way. He made a navigational error. That was what his whole thing was. It was a navigational error. Well, what's made me believe for years why he never really made it, why people really didn't talk about it. you know, he didn't get as big as Lindbergh and all these people, was because he truly was a modest guy. Uh, he didn't stand up on balconies and make simple boyish statements about truth and motherhood. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't do any of this stuff. And in fact, uh, he was the basis, I suspect, for a, for a short story that James Thurber wrote about a guy that flew around the world and wore, he had this leather jacket, and all he did was fly this airplane. You remember that story? They fly around the world, and whenever they kept asking him something, he said, oh, knock it off. Who cares? Uh, they'd say, well, don't you say one? Don't you want to say something about motherhood? Oh, motherhood. Yeah, that old bag? Oh, boy. You're going to tell me as I say that? He said, well, aren't you going to say something for the kids of America? The kids of America? Oh, a bunch of louts. <laughs> and, uh, and that was Thurber's thing. Of course, this is basically the... the, the uh, the writer's jealousy of the of the man who does things. I'm afraid. I'm, uh, I hate to do uh, a little pinpricking of Thurber, but you know it kind of shines through. But do you want to hear the opening page of, of Douglas Corrigan's book? It was totally written by himself. And inside the uh, frontispiece, it says, "I hope this isn't boring." It's a fascinating character, poor old Corrigan. It says uh, they kind of uh, apologize for it. It says he is not a polished professional writer and there was no ghost writer involved it says this is the unvarnished and at many places awkward life story <laughs> in other words he just sort of wrote it down see which makes it even greater it says a guileless book naive open candid and alive with the spontaneous humor which comes out of a man who never thought of himself as a hero or a writer and he just did this thing and you'll hear the opening lines of this this uh this book kind of gives you the idea it's called that's my story it was in the afternoon of august 25th 1938 that i landed my curtis robin on the gravel runway of the municipal airport at san antonio texas and taxied over in front of the hangars there was quite a crowd of people assembled who'd come out to get a first glimpse of the flyer who couldn't read a compass correctly even after 12 years of flying i shut off the motor climbed out of the plane, closed the cabin door, pulled the handle shut, thereby locking myself out and leaving the keys inside. <laughs> now, Lindbergh would never have said a thing like that, you know. 
after doing that, I turned around and couldn't help from grinning because the people were all laughing and shouting and waving wildly and asking to see my compass. The first person to greet me was Wilmark Marvin, one of my boyhood friends. Now, that's the big difference. Who's a, who greets Lindbergh? Oh, the president of France. <laughs> I mean, somebody very official. Who greets him? Wilmark Marvin, one of my boyhood friends. Wilmark introduced me to the mayor and a lot of other people. Well, that's what I mean by naive. And by this time, the newsreel cameramen and newspaper reporters and photographers were taking pictures of everything and asking dozens of questions. The mayor, the airport manager, and the reception committee all shook hands with me, and while this was going on, I was able to stop and say hello to Mr. and Mrs. Marvin and Wilmark's sister Elizabeth. <laughs> now, there's, you know, it's a great primitive book. The idea that he was going to say to, to Mr. M Mil Wilmark's sister, Elizabeth, I said hello to them. Well, now, this this came in the mail, and I can only say I want to thank the guy. He, he rode uh, the plane all the way to to uh, Ireland, and it was this Curtis Robin. Now, for those of you who don't know what, don't know what a Curtis Robin is, it's one of the great classic monoplanes of all time. In fact, the Curtis Robin is to the airplane what the Model A is to cars. Uh, you know that uh, that everybody who knows anything at all about cars knows that the uh, the Model A is sort of a great uh, all-time classic. Everybody looks for Model A's in the junkyard, and you still see a lot of them you know, driving around. Well, that's also true of Curtis Robins, that there are Curtis Robins flying, quite a few of them, but they go way, way back. And the first Curtis Robins were built about the time of the Model A, actually. They roughly were uh, the same time period. They were in the late 1920s, I guess, from the history of the aircraft. And it was built by the Curtis Corporation, the Curtis Robin. And it was a, a high-winged, fixed landing gear biplane with that big old engine, that single fan sticking out in front, and a very long, thin fuselage. This is a good picture of it. It's a classic airplane. And uh, it, it really is the airplane that looks exactly like what you build when you build a model airplane. <laughs> Just a model airplane. And that's what the Curtis Robin was. Uh, I don't know offhand. I don't have any technical information. I don't even want to pop off with it. I don't know the the uh, the horsepower of the conventional Curtis Robin. Does anybody know out there the horsepower of the Curtis Robin? So you can get an idea what kind of an airplane it was. It was a very light plane. It was it was not much bigger than any of the contemporary uh, Cherokees that are flying around. And incidentally, a, a, a less rugged aircraft than the Ryan, which uh, which was the aircraft that uh, Lindbergh flew. I'll give you another question. You want to hear some trivia? How about mechanical trivia? Let's see whether you're good at this. Does anybody know what was the aircraft? All right, we'll ask you first, uh, uh, the person now. First of all, who was the flyer that, uh, now, uh, I have to put in a little explanation though here. Everybody's going to say, Sherpa must be a thousand years old. Forget it. I happen to be a cuckoo on airplanes, and I, I read everything I get my hands on. And uh, just like some people are nutty about cars, they read everything about cars or ball players, uh, aircraft have always fascinated me and the people who fly them. So uh, don't think for a minute that I was a grown-up walking around guy at the time any of this happened. Uh, I'm just asking, no, I'm serious, because because the people have a tendency to think that if you, if you mention the Civil War, you must have been at Appomattox, you know. Uh, but here is one of the most famous transatlantic flights. Uh, who, what, famous nightclub comic made a whole big thing about flying the Atlantic at the time when, you know, all this was going on. 
in an airplane that was famous for what? <laughs> now, that's a two-edged question. Uh, who was the nightclub comic? And he was very big in New York nightclubs. And, in fact, he even did some television. He, you know, he just died a couple of years ago. He, he did some TV. I, I think he's dead. I don't want to go out and say that, but I believe he is. But he was a famous nightclub comic. Who was he? How about that for a trivia? That's, now, that's real trivia. And it was a whole big story. They had all over the country, they had big news stories about it and uh, the aircraft. And he was going to fly with another guy. The, the other guy was going to co-pilot. And he was flying the Atlantic. Who was that? I'm waiting. Now, I'll ask you another question. Uh, who was the famous flyer that had only one eye? Famous flyer with one eye. How about that one? Here's another one. Who was the famous flyer who was always pictured? Uh, he, he, he had a pet. He, he always carried this good luck pet with him that was kind of his, uh, his uh, symbol. Who was he and what was the pet? He was famous for that, absolutely. Uh, he was always pictured with this, this animal. And uh, very dashing. He was the total epitome of the Superman dashing type flyer. He had the, uh, the white high-water pants, you know, with the black puttees. He had a black uh, leather jacket with a big white scarf, big goggles. This guy was famous. Uh, he was uh, roughly at the same time of, uh, of the woman, Amelia Earhart. Now, here we're getting some of the answers. We'll see. If, uh, what happened to Lee? Did she just leave? Oh, here it is. Did you, get, did you get the name of the guy? Well, hold it up. What is it? Just give me his initials. I'll tell whether he's right. Uh, tailspin. What's tailspin? <laughs> What's that got to do? Oh, that's a comic strip. What's this got to do with it? I didn't ask any questions about comic strips. I can't hear you. I see. Well, all right. Uh, I, I, I repeat the question. Apparently you confused the question. What was the famous nightclub comic who would play the... That wasn't tailspin comic. It was not a nightclub comic a famous nightclub comic who was flying the, uh, who was going to fly the ocean. I don't know whether they did it or not. I never hear about that. But it was a whole big thing, and it's in, it's in aviation history because of the thing he was attempting to do and the, the special aircraft that he was going to fly it in. I'll give you a clue. Uh, the aircraft that he was going to fly it in was famous for one very interesting thing. The wings were to be totally filled with what? <laughs> no, not fuel. No, 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 not booze. <laughs> he wasn't that type. But uh, who was he? Here she got. I think she's got it now. Tailspin Tommy. <laughs> Good Lord. Forget comic strip characters. I'm talking about real characters here now. You notice most people relate to the artificial ones. They think, a lot of people think the Red Baron is a character in, uh, in Peanuts. That's, uh, that's correct. Uh, that's absolutely right. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's always right. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. Two, two guys out there got it. The nightclub comic. One guy. He knew all of it. Uh, the nightclub comic was Harry Richmond, and uh, he was going to fly the Atlantic in an aircraft that had in it, in the wings, ping pong balls. Well, the object of the ping pong balls was, of course, if he was forced down. 
the aircraft would float. <laughs> I mean, it's very obvious. And uh, uh, he was, by the way, speaking of ping pong balls, uh, and, uh, and I don't know what, brought, what made me think of that, but did you read the piece in the paper about how they're trying to raise this uh, this Staten Island ferry that sunk over here in the uh, in the river? And uh, they got the idea of how to do it from an old Donald Duck comic strip. It seems that Donald Duck raised a sunken boat in some comic strip by putting ping pong balls in the hull, and it came to the top. So they, they, they tried to do this. And do you know that the, that the process that uses the ping pong balls that raises hulls of ships is patented, and Donald Duck is listed as the patentee? That's right. <laughs> Donald Duck has a patent. Uh, you know, so uh, you can't put this kind of history down. Now, somebody else, he called in also and said the flyer, the very famous flyer, who was, uh, had one, one eye, was Wiley Post. Now, I'm going to ask you some more Wiley Post questions. Uh, and the most important, of course, about Wiley Post is how did he get famous? What did he do? Why was he a famous flyer? And uh, secondly, uh, he was killed in an air crash. I will tell you that. Who was killed with him? Were they all calling in with that? That is the mo one of the most famous ones. Who was killed with him? The guy that was killed with him, I'll give you a clue on that. Do you know who that is, George? Or did you know, then? You don't know who was killed with him? Well, or you know, then you do know. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the thing about him uh, as, a, as a kind of... He was also an airplane cuckoo, this, this um, person. He loved aircraft. And he was a close friend of Wiley Post. And uh, he, at that time, was the biggest star, really the biggest star, uh, reading the histories of variety at that time. He was the biggest star in showbiz, probably the biggest star in the business at the time. He was a tremendously big star. And he was killed with Wiley Post. And uh, where was he killed? Where did the crash occur? Now, how's this for a mind with trivia? <laughs> now, now uh, uh, there's a lot of this. You know, airplanes, you know, it, it always has amazed me at, uh, how quickly uh, the most important stuff that happens in any given field is kind of buried uh, in, uh, in, in the dust and the trivial file. And years later, a few years later, in fact, people are frantically trying to find out this information, but the contemporary people don't think it's important enough to say. Now, an example of that is that there's very little real information around about the people who flew airplanes. A aircraft, you know, airplane flying, it's hard to believe that, uh, yeah, that's correct, uh, that the man who was killed with him was Will Rogers, and uh, they were killed in Alaska. Uh, they were killed on takeoff. The aircraft was about to take off, and uh, it, was a, it was a float plane. And uh, they got the aircraft off the water a ways, and uh, apparently she lost power on takeoff. And uh, she ducked. Uh, what they did, it ducked. Uh, this is what they call ducking uh, in uh, amphibious parlance. In other words, when she came down, instead of gliding down, the, the, uh, the pontoons dug in, flipped over, and that was the end of the ball game. But that's what happened with that aircraft. What was the name of the aircraft? Well, that's the most, one of the most famous airplanes in history. I mean, that's like the spirit of St. Louis, so it is not an esoteric question. What was the name of that airplane? You see, in those days, they named airplanes, like the spirit of St. Louis. That was a famous airplane. And uh, there were others, like the GB was a famous airplane. 
And uh, what was the name of Wiley Post's airplane? It was a very famous plane. Uh, that brings up another question. The name of the guy who had the, uh, the, the, the pet in him all the time. He always, he always had a pet with him. And I remember one thing about this guy. I always remember this. I was a little kid. And my father was a, was a real airport cuckoo. Maybe this is why, to this day, I'm, I'm fascinated by airports. Every time I go near an airport, I want to go over to the airport. And uh, even as a flyer, when I fly around the countryside, I see an airport down below me. I want to land on the airport because I like being at the airport. <laughs> and I like to get at the airport. Airport. Here I am, I'm flying an airplane, and I like to get at the airport and watch airplanes. Uh, there's a, there's a, that's a little underground group of people who go to airports and just sit and watch planes. It's a, it's a, I don't know, there's something very satisfying. Very satisfying. Uh, it's, it's, it's a deep need. You see that airplane go up, it feels groovy. And, other, and you see them come down. You see them come down in that long approach, and they're crabbing a little into the wind, and, and they see those flaps come down, and, and uh, a little side slip, and, and then that last instant when he just flares out of the